I can only walk about 10 feet at a time. And I remember counting. I'm like, okay, you can do 10, 10 steps. I, I have to keep going. I kept thinking, you know, my family needs me to find somebody. From Wyoming Public Media, this is Human Nature, real stories where humans and our habitat meet. I'm Erin Jones. This time, we'll hear about a woman who got caught in a snowstorm and kept going to save her family. Karen Klein is a biology professor in Pennsylvania. She's always liked being outside. She's a runner, a backpacker, a canoeer, and she loves the Beatles. So, in December 2016, when she heard Cirque du Soleil was performing a Beatles-themed special, she and her husband decided to celebrate the holidays with their 10-year-old son in Las Vegas. And Isaac was, our son was studying geology at his school, and we thought it would be really neat to just do some quick side trips to Bryce Canyon and to the Grand Canyon. So they rented a car. We were really excited. We Our first destination was for Bryce Canyon, and we had reservations to spend the night. And we drove around the canyon and, and got our pictures. My son, for his geology class, he was uh, making his own videos and narrating all about Bryce Canyon. And we spent the night. Our mood was great. It was beautiful. And we set out the next morning to the Grand Canyon, and we saw on the weather forecast that they were forecasting rain. It was going to be about 45 degrees and raining or drizzling, and we thought, oh, well, should we go? Should we just head back to Las Vegas? But they didn't want to give up when they were so close. They planned to spend only a few hours at the Grand Canyon and then drive back to Las Vegas. So they bought raincoats at the hotel and set out on the morning of December 22nd. We were following... Uh, following our GPS, and it had taken us on a road that was uh, paved, not very well traveled, and it was overcast. It was a little bit rainy, and then the road started getting a little bit narrower and a little less traveled looking. It was no longer paved. It was more kind of a gravel, and it was still drizzling. It got a bit muddy. We kept thinking this this can't be right. I mean, it was only about when the road got gravelly, we kept saying, well, this, this doesn't seem right. Um, and then our GPS indicated that there was a major road about nine miles ahead on the road we were at, that this road ended onto a main, a major road that was open. So we thought, well, I mean, this seems somewhat remote, but it will take us to this main road, so we should just kind of give it a go, you know, keep trying. And then we just kept thinking, you know, this this is just, this. there's something wrong here. And we were actually looking for a place to turn around to go back. We kind of hit like a, a rut in the road and it kind of threw us off to the side. And we just kind of basically sunk in the mud on the side, kind of in the, not really a ditch, but just more on a, the lower shoulder of the road. We unfortunately didn't have cell phone service, so we couldn't call. And so we gathered um, rocks and 
tree branches and tree limbs to put under the tires, you know, to try to gain some traction. It was a rental car. So normally in our cars, we carry emergency road kits and, and all of that. And we, this, the rental car did not have any of that. So we were limited to the resources that we had around us. I mean, we had lots of food and lots of water in the car, but that obviously wouldn't help us get unstuck. They spent about an hour trying to get the car out of the ditch. Pushing it, trying to rock it back and forth, and just decided, look, this, is, this car is not going anywhere. It was just drizzling a little, and they knew the road teed into a highway nine miles ahead. Karen's husband had been in a car accident a few months before and injured his back. He was still recovering. So they decided she would go for help. Either she'd get cell service or meet a car on the highway. And that's realistic on the East Coast. But out West, where conditions are harsher, hundreds of square miles are uninhabited and without cell service. And the GPS had guided Karen's family deep into one of the most remote parts of the country. So I thought, okay, well, I'll just take some water and um, some snacks and I'll go flag somebody down because it's a major road and it's open. So somebody will be there and I'll flag somebody down and then, you know, call a tow truck and have somebody come back and get us out. So at about three o'clock in the afternoon, Karen dressed in lots of layers and the best shoes she had with her, a pair of slip-on street shoes she set out down the gravel road. Well, I took my phone with me and I kept checking it, thinking, all right, well, sooner or later we have to get cell phone service. So we have a, a major carrier. And, you know, we're here in the Northeast, our mid-Atlantic states, so it's really, you might go through a tunnel and lose cell phone service. So we, we just didn't have that, that background of knowing that there are parts of the country where there are like wide swaths of no cell phone service. Karen felt optimistic, and as she walked, she noticed local wildlife. I'm an ecologist, I teach ecology, and I'm always out, generally with my students, out in nature, in the woods or in streams. I think it's called a, a pika. It, it almost looks like a cross between a rabbit and a squirrel that is um, indigenous to that area. And I saw what I thought was a coyote, that it was pretty far in the distance. I don't think there are wolves in that area, and it didn't look big enough to be a wolf. And it was actually really beautiful. So it was, I, honestly, I was really enjoying how beautiful the woods were. Um, I'd never been to this part of the, the country before, and, and the, the smells of the evergreens, I mean, it, it was just absolutely lovely. It started to snow, but I was determined to get to this main road, because in my mind that was, I, I didn't want to turn back to the car, because that would put us back into that same situation. And so I just kept moving forward, but it kept snowing a bit harder, and there were, there were lots of like intersections of roads that I thought, you know, it looked like from what I recalled that this uh, road I was on teed out to the major road. And I so, was somewhat doubting myself, and I would kind of head down one of the side roads, and I'd be like, no, 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 come back and go forward. By the time I got to that main road, it, it was open, it was not closed, and it was plowed, and it looked like there had been some cars. You could see tire tracks. It was plowed in the way that 
Um, it was snow covered. There were a few inches of snow on this road and maybe a few tire tracks. Like it wasn't really that heavily traveled. And I thought, well, I could stand here and wait for somebody. But if I keep walking forward on the road, I could also see somebody too. Karen had no idea which way to go. So she picked left and started walking down the highway. And it just kept snowing harder and harder. And I thought, well, I, I can't stop now. It, 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 you, it was at that point where this is, it was, it wouldn't have been conducive to turn back and retrace my steps because I had already walked far enough. After an hour or two walking on the main road, Karen still hadn't seen any cars. The possibility that anyone would come seemed more and more remote. Then the sun set. And I kept thinking, if I keep walking forward, eventually I'll get cell phone service. I kept thinking, you know, if I turn back, I know I won't get cell phone service, but maybe if I walk another hour, eventually I'll at least get one bar of, of phone service. So I just kept walking. And I just kept walking <laughs> until it got dark and I used my phone for, I don't have a flashlight on my phone, but you know, the screen illuminates. And so I was using that to light the way because it was at that point sewing rather heavily and I could keep, at least I could keep on the main road. Soon, Karen was trudging through nearly a foot of snow on the road. She was scared and cold, but kept going. In the dark, the world took on new characteristics. The trees, kind of uh, as I looked up in the sky, they, they're blue in a green tinge, that kind of like a waving motion. I kept, kept thinking I was seeing like lights also, and that I thought, well, maybe that's a snowplow, um, but it wasn't, that's not what that was. But there was a situation where um, it was, I had still had my cell phone, the light from my cell phone, and the road diverged a, f a few different ways. And I just had no idea which way to go. It was very difficult to tell which was the main road. And, um, I was, uh, wasn't calling out, you know, we, I don't ascribe to any specific religion. Um, so I wasn't calling out or praying for help. I just said, you know, well, you know which, which way do I go? And I saw a swirl of snow next to me in a, what looked like to me to be a weasel pop up. And I thought, okay, well, I, I, I didn't know what it was, but it was a weasel and it, kind of like looked at me and kind of pointed it in it's like kind of pointed at a certain direction and then scurried away down the one road and I'm like okay I don't know if that was a weasel or not I don't know if weaselers are indigenous to this area but I guess I'll go that way I mean I'm a turtle ecologist so I would guess if there's some sort of a patronus or some sort of like a spirit totem it would be a tortoise that would pop up and say go this way or point in one direction but it was a, a weasel sure could have been a real weasel, I don't know, but that it just kind of like popped up out of the snow and ran down one road, I, I don't know. 
And that happened three times as I was walking and I would get to roads that I didn't know where they would go. It was this little, this cute little weasel. And I, honestly, I kept thinking, okay, I, I must be dying and I just don't know it. I didn't stop walking until I had lost that light on my phone because the battery wound up dying and it was around at that point two in the morning. And so because I couldn't see, I found a tree, a spruce or a fir that I, I sat under and I backed, put my back against it and I wrapped the fronds of the, the branches of the tree. I, pulled branches down and wrapped them around me, kind of made my own little fort. I thought, look, I can't, I couldn't feel my feet. And I thought, I can't fall asleep because that's what you hear. You know, if you fall asleep, you're not going to wake up. You're going to freeze to the ground. And I thought, okay, I have to stay awake. I remember having, um, getting very scared when I couldn't feel my left foot. Um, that's, that's when I, started to like panic in panic mode and I took my I have glasses that I wear um, just to drive and I had glasses in my pocket and I took them out to try to chip the snow out of that shoe and I couldn't get the snow out and I was getting very frustrated with that and then kind of snapping to and thinking I'm just wasting energy by getting upset about it I, I can't think about what the consequences of my foot because I kept saying I'm going to lose my foot I'm going to lose my foot and getting upset about it and I thought I, I can't do that I can't focus on that that's that's wasted energy and you know at that point I was extremely tired and I had been hallucinating and or I believe I was hallucinating and so I just kept talking to myself until I said okay when the first light comes up you can get up and start walking again but at this point I had to stay I had to stay awake At first light, Karen struggled to her feet. When she came out from under her tree, she saw that the plowed road she'd been walking diverged into another unplowed road. And I walked forward and I saw a street sign that said the visitor's center for the Grand Canyon, six miles with the arrow. And I thought, oh, okay, you know, I, I, I can make it. So she started walking down the new unplowed road. The snow here was deeper, and the going was rough. Two, two and a half feet of snow, but there was a thin layer of ice on the top. So I would like step, and then it would kind of go down, and I'd pick up my feet again. I pulled my groin muscle about an hour after beginning to walk in order to move my left leg um, to pick it up high enough to keep walking in that deep snow, I had to physically grab my, the, my pants leg by the pants and lift it up with my arm to move that leg. And my left shoe had gotten packed with ice and I couldn't get my shoe back on. 
I only had a sock. Um, I had been eating the bark from the pine and the aspen trees, the twigs and the needles. I'd learned that through wilderness survival types of classes. And, uh, but my stomach was, uh, I still had, um, still hadn't eaten much. And I was um, weak and with the pooled muscle, I could only walk about 10 feet at a time. And I remember counting, I'm like, okay, you can do 10, 10 steps. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, and then I would stop, and I would then wait about thirty seconds, and I would do ten more steps, and all of this with just with only a sock on my left foot. I I have to keep going. I kept thinking, you know, my family needs me to find somebody to get help for them, and that kept me going. That kept me going. This highway, the only way I could stay on it, I knew where I was going. It was like a, a wide open clearing with woods on either side. It was about the, this clearing was like the width of two football fields with woods on either side. If the snow gets deep, they have um, like big uh, sticks that stick out of the snow so the plows know where the, the road ends, you know, on the side so that the plow doesn't go down into the ditch. So I kept following those. Um, kind of zigzagging back and forth. I had crows that were following me. They were kind of just cawing and they were flying from tree to tree. I used to run a wildlife hospital. I was a wildlife rehabilitator back in the 90s and we would get thousands of injured and orphaned wild animals. And the only ones that I had a sense that were extremely intuitive were the injured and the orphan crows. Like somehow they were just so intelligent, eerily intelligent, that they thought that they, they knew that you were helping them and you weren't trying to eat them like the other animals, the squirrels or the rabbits that we would get into the hospital. Like I kept thinking like, what are these? Are they, they're following me. Is there something else going on here? I didn't reach the visitor center um, until it was like dusk and a snowstorm, another snowstorm was coming in at that point. And I, I reached the visitor center and saw um, there's kind of outbuildings there and there was a, a visitor center kiosk, you know, where they collect the tickets to go into the park. Pretty far forward, but to the left of me was a cabin and there were snowmobiles there and there was a pickup truck there and I thought, okay, somebody's here, you know, even though um, it was snowing uh, and it was remote, it, somebody must be here to look after the place, you know. And uh, I stumbled through and knocked on the door and there was no answer. And so what I did was I uh, broke the window with my elbow and crawled through the window and it, it, their electricity wasn't on, the water wasn't on, because I thought, okay, I, I made it, I am alive, I actually made it. Uh, it. It was cold in the cabin because there was obviously no electricity, but I was not doing well from, like my, my mind wasn't working well, so I just kept thinking, well, I have to get something to drink, but the water wasn't turned on, and I, I was looking for matches to start a fire. It was apparently where the ranger, the main ranger lives. 
but they weren't there. So it was furnished. It wasn't just an abandoned cabin. It was beautiful. It was, uh, you know, beds and sofas and blankets. It looked like somebody just went out to grab a cup of coffee, you know, it looked like they might have been there an hour earlier. And I thought maybe they're coming home soon or something and wrap myself up in a blanket and tried to fall asleep, but couldn't. And about, they said it was about two, two o'clock the next, that morning, there was a knock at the door. Like, uh, are you, is somebody here? Is this Karen Klein? And can you open the door? Because I, well, I heard outside something about the window's broken, the window's broken, because I stuffed a pillow in the window. Somebody's here, somebody's here. And I opened up the door and I immediately said, I'm so sorry, officer. I promise I'll pay for the broken window. Please don't arrest me. I mean, my brain was just, I was just in another world, actually. And they real quick, no, 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 it's okay. We're not here to arrest you. You know, are, are you Karen Klein? You know, what, where are you from? What is your name? Where, um, what's your phone number? You know, just to see how lucid you are. When I hadn't returned to the car that night, the next morning, Eric decided to, my husband decided to walk back from which we came to get cell phone service. And about 16 miles after he started walking, he got one bar of cell phone service and he called 911. So on December 24th, two days and 26 miles after she'd set out to find help, Karen was taken to the hospital in St. George, Utah, where she reunited with her husband and son. It was wonderful to see them again. It was absolutely wonderful to see them. The nurses and the support staff at the hospital, everyone was just so nice. And it was just dripping with kindness. It was really, it was really wonderful. It was just a wonderful, I'm glad that, that I had that experience considering, you know, undergoing what we went through. I mean, it was just the community we were in, too, in St. George. I mean, people were seeing it on their local news, so people would want to come in. A family offered, they had a 10-year-old son, and they offered for Isaac to come over and play with their son. People were donating clothes. People were coming in and giving us uh good luck tokens, like a, a man came in from off the street and had a silver dollar that he said had always brought him luck. There is um, a level in, my, in one's bloodstream, they're called CK levels, and it's a measure of the, the breakdown of muscle tissue when you're exerting yourself. And a marathon runner, for instance, after they run a marathon, they have a level of uh, 200 CK values or 200 after they run a marathon. And when they took my blood and checked for my, my levels, my levels were 55,000. That's how much my, my tissues were breaking down um, to just to keep me alive. And so they worried a bit about kidney failure at that point. It wasn't just the frostbite that was problematic. It was also organ failure that they were worried about with all the energy I exerted. But they said, had they not found me when they did, that, that I would not have survived um, into the next night because of both of those issues. 
The doctors were able to save Karen's feet from the severe frostbite. For a little while, they were numb, but then, as feeling came back, they became excruciatingly painful. She used a walker and a cane for her first semester back teaching in Pennsylvania. And with the months of chronic pain lingered post-traumatic stress, smells or sounds, or sometimes just darkness, would plunge her back into the terror of the Grand Canyon. In the years since her experience, the frostbite has mostly healed, although sometimes Karen's feet still ache. And as the chronic pain dissipated, so did the PTSD. But she's holding off on any ecology hikes for now. And sometimes there are still triggers. Generally, one thinks of snowfall as as very peaceful and beautiful. And... um, it was more uh, foreboding, I would say. Like even when I see videos of snow falling and uh, on social media, you know, they'll say, oh, we can't wait until winter and it'll be like this winter scene. And one specifically was at night in the woods on a road with snow falling. And I just, I couldn't, I thought that that's terrifying. <laughs> that no longer holds any sort of, Nostalgia for me, that's just not something I want to experience again. Our storyteller was Karen Klein. Karen ran her first 5K again six months after her ordeal, and another in the fall. She says, running clears out the cobwebs. I'm Erin Jones. The show is produced by me, Caroline Ballard, Alana Elder, August Law, Annie Osborne, Anna Rader, and Micah Schweitzer. Human Nature is a production of Wyoming Public Media. It's Human Nature.